guys can grab a seat. It's good to see you all. Thanks for bringing the church into this space. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church. Get to do much of the preaching around here. I'm excited to, to do that this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'll just go ahead and invite you to open up to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning, first 17 verses. Uh, if you're new or if it's been a while since you've been around our church, uh, we back around the season of Advent last year, launched into Luke's gospel account. And we have slowly, methodically been working our way through on what is looking like it's gonna be about a year and a half run through this book of the Bible. We're essentially slowing down to second gear and taking a Sunday stroll through a book of the Bible that many of us may already be fairly familiar with. But as I mentioned before on a couple of occasions, there's something about slowing down that when you do that, you start to, to see uh, treasure that was buried that has yet to be excavated. And, and so we've surely seen that over the course of six chapters now. We're gonna uh, dive into a passage that by the time we're done this morning, you might think to yourself, why didn't we save that one for Easter? Uh, and yet, when we get into next week, John the Baptist send, sending his messengers to ask questions of Jesus, are, are you the one? Are you, are you the promised one? I'm really wrestling with some doubt here. You start to see some elements of both Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And so I don't think you'll be disappointed when you come back next week for Easter. Uh, but for the purpose of this morning, Luke chapter seven, verses one through 17. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage will be up on the screen behind me, along with any sort of commentary quotes uh, and other passages outside of Luke's gospel account. Let me go ahead and pray for us so we can get after this thing. Heavenly Father, first I wanna begin by praying for those in our area, particularly in the Noonan area, who were impacted by the storm a few days ago, many of which, uh, of whom are, sitting with the shambles of a home that once stood and is now fallen. Lord, we've been talking about this for the past year, surely, but even before that, a truth that we desperately need to lean into in times like these, which is that you are sovereign over the storm and you are present in the storm. And so I pray for any brothers and sisters in this community, whether they be a part of our church family or not, uh, Lord, that, that those truths would not be lost on them, and that there would also, I pray, be many who would be drawn to you, to your church, to explore the truth claims of Christianity in the midst of loss, and that, Lord, you, you would do a great work in the lives of those who would lean in in that particular way, a work that coincides with exactly where we're going in the scriptures this morning as you breathe life into dead places. So I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would save lost sinners. I pray that you would sanctify saints by your grace and that we would walk away not only informed but transformed by the power of the gospel for your glory, Lord. Holy Spirit, we, we ask you, we plead with you to move in power. I ask you to give me a feeling sense of the things I preach in these moments to come. I pray that you would move, that you would stir, that you would work. Spirit of God, do what only you can do. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I mentioned this 
on a couple of occasions along the way thus far in this series, Luke, Luke does something that is a bit unique at times along the way. And, and you'll see these sort of literary techniques by different authors and different writings that have made their way into the canon of scripture. So Mark does this thing called uh, the sandwich technique where he'll take two bookends and right in the middle of those pieces of bread, proverbially speaking, he'll put the meat of a point that he's trying to get across. Well, Luke do, does this this pairing sort of thing that, that we've talked about uh, early on in this series, as you see Luke's gospel account open up with a couple of birth announcements, two stories laid out side by side for comparison and contrast. The foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, uh, followed by the foretelling of the birth of Jesus Christ the Lord himself. Two announcements, two pregnancies, two songs of praise. That was our Advent series. See it again in the back-to-back -back stories of the leper and the paralytic, as well as the back-to-back -back stories of Jesus on the Sabbath. Well, this morning, it presents us with much of the same as Luke brings us face-to-face -face with two death-defying miracles, the healing of a man knocking on death's door and the resurrection of a man being carried away for burial. Two stories that invite us really to buckle our redemptive historical seatbelts as they, they point both backwards and forwards in time, all the way back to the story of creation, all the way forward to the story of consummation, Jesus returning to set all things right. And so essentially, we're gonna get uh, something of a crash course in redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption, uh, restoration, and you're still gonna get out in time for lunch. If, if you look at verse one, Luke says, uh, after he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of his people, he entered Capernaum. Going back to last week, Jesus has just finished preaching his famous Sermon on the Plain, presenting a contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, declaring the blessing of association with the one and the curse of association with the other, revealing something of the, what the planting of Jesus's flag of kingship looks like, what it means to come under the rule and reign of heaven's king. It's in the wake of having preached that great sermon that Jesus makes his way to the city of Capernaum where he's already established something of a reputation. If you go back to the earlier chapters of Luke's gospel account, it's the city in which Jesus performed many healings before going to his hometown of Nazareth where he would be rejected. It's the city in which people were astonished at his teaching, chapter four, verse 32, for his word possessed authority. So that a crowd of people, Luke tells us, sought to keep Jesus from leaving the town because they just couldn't get enough of him. It's in that town that Luke says, verse two, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Right, a little bit of a historical backdrop here. A centurion was an officer who was in charge of and responsible for roughly 100 people. In this case, a middle-ranking officer, Gentile descent, who has a servant under his watch having fallen deathly ill. And it happens to be a man whom the centurion highly values. And not simply on the basis of the man's work ethic as if it were simply some utilitarian relationship, but rather the word translated highly valued in the, in the Greek is the word entimos, which can also be translated precious or honored. This is a man whom the centurion esteems, compassionately, humanely wanting the best for. But there's nothing he can do as the fate of the dying man is out of his hands. Some of us have experienced this. 
as we've seen loved ones on the decline and there comes that point in time where you just feel helpless, like it's out of your hands. And so he does what anyone should do when they're brought to the end of themselves. He looks to Jesus. Verse three, Luke says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Having heard that Jesus is back in town, the centurion sends a group of Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and heal the dying servant. And the Jewish elders search out Jesus and ask him to grant the centurion's request for healing, declaring that the man who sent them is worthy on two, two accounts. For one, he loves the Jewish people at a time when many Romans despised and looked down on the Jews. And second, he's incredibly generous, having invested his own resources in the building of the Capernaum synagogue. Here you have something incredibly unusual. You have a group of Jewish social and religious leaders lobbying for a Roman soldier, certain to have gotten Jesus's attention. He's a Gentile. We, we understand, Jesus, you might need some persuading here. Trust us when we say he's one of the good guys. Verse six tells us, Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to, to come to you, but say the word and, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Right, Jesus goes with the Jewish elders in response to their request, but before he can even get to the house, the centurion sends, sends friends to keep him at bay, to keep him at a distance. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm reminded of Peter in the boat with Jesus. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. The word translated presume, verse seven, means to count worthy. So that there's actually this double declaration of unworthiness on the part of the centurion as it pertains to being in the presence of Jesus. Having been declared worthy, mind you, by the Jewish elders. The pastors speak well of me. His position of authority could have gone to his head along with his longstanding reputation in the community. Of course, Jesus owes me. I gave more to the capital campaign than anyone else. And yet, he presents himself to Jesus in a posture of humility, understanding something of grace. In addition, notice that he comes to Jesus in faith, but say the word and let my servant be healed. But he understands that not only does Jesus have the power and authority to heal, but that he can do so without so much as being present in the same room. He knows that all Jesus has to do is speak, which, which he relates to his own experience as an officer in the Roman army, right? On the one hand, he's a man under authority as is Jesus in submission to the Father's will. And on the other hand, he possesses authority over those under his watch so that what he commands comes to pass. I tell them to, to go and they go. I tell them to come and they come. I say do this and, and, and he does it. As is the case with Jesus who when he speaks, things happen, right? 
We've seen it over and over in Luke's gospel account, but it actually goes further back in time than that, does it not? This is that redemptive historical crash course that Jesus has been doing this since the dawn of human existence going all the way back to the story of creation. John chapter one, verses one through four. In the beginning was the word, the word being Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life and the life was the light of men. In other words, we talk about this a lot around here. Jesus was part of that let there be light stuff in the beginning. How did God bring forth the elements uh, that make up this glorious, divine, cosmic theater? Psalm 33, verse nine. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He said, let there be light. And light said, you got it. I will now exist. And not only did he create the world from nothing, ex nihilo, but he sustains it with a word as well. Hebrews 1, 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't know what you were doing on Thursday night around 12.30 a.m. If you were like me, you were in an interior room in a lower part of your home wondering which direction a tornado was gonna head. Some of you have driven the, the roads of downtown noon and you've seen what it did. The truth is our lives hang in the balance as do the stars in the sky moment by moment and the difference between life and death is Jesus's authoritative word. We should expect that when Jesus speaks, things will happen. Again, Luke's gone to painstaking lengths to show us that over and over again. We've seen a leper healed with a word a paralytic forgiven with a word, the apostleship of the church established with a word. See, the, the centurion not only understands that when Jesus speaks, things happen, he believes it. So that we're told, verse nine, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had, been sent, returned to the house, they found the servant well. There are only two accounts of Jesus marveling in the gospels, only two. He marveled because of the unbelief of those in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And here he marvels at the faith of a Gentile centurion, a faith like nothing Jesus had found in all of Israel. Not only a man of power seeing his great need for help, not only one of society's good men, so to speak, seeing his unworthiness, but a man believing that Jesus commands with an authority that must be obeyed. It's not to say that there, there was no faith in Jesus expressed by the Jewish people. There were many in Capernaum who, who believed in Jesus. But this man's trust in Jesus and declaration of his lordship was different. It was different than anything Jesus had seen before. It's an example of Luke's progressive development of the theme of Jesus as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, going back to chapter two, verse 32. That Jesus sees a faith worth marveling at, and he responds by doing exactly what the centurion knows he can do. As he heals the man's servant without so much as ever meeting him. That's crazy. 
In, in Matthew's parallel account, we're told that it, it happened with a word. Surprise, surprise. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. In other words, another way you could say it, Jesus said, let there be healing. And the man's body, just like light in the creation story said, you got it. What else can I do? I shall now be healed. It's not only an incredible exercise of Jesus's lordship, but a beautiful display of his compassion to bring healing and restoration. But, but Luke wants us to go further. That story in and of itself on its own is not sufficient. And so he tells a second story, pairing it with the first in verse 11, saying, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried off, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. The only place in the Bible where the town of Nain is mentioned, it's a small town, roughly a day's journey from Capernaum, about five miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Jesus shows up at the city gate of that seemingly insignificant town only to be met by a funeral procession heading in the opposite direction. I'm sure most of us have experienced this, that moment where you stop the car or pull it over on the side of the road when you see headlights coming your way in a, in a line, a procession of vehicles. You look in, some of the windows you can see into, you see the grief, you see the sorrow, you see the loss. And you thank God that that's not you today. Here you have a man being carried away to a place of burial. In this case, the only son of a widowed woman in the community. My goodness, a woman whose heart must have been filled with grief. She just buried her husband, now laying her only son to rest, preparing in the words of one commentator to bury a piece of her own heart. Clearly loved by many in the community, praise God for that, on the basis of the sizable crowd in attendance, and yet no certain promise of provision in the days to come on the basis of the culture of first century Palestine. And along comes Jesus, whom we've just seen heal a dying man, which in and of itself, we can call that a miracle, I think. But let's be honest, it's no resurrection. We know, we know Jesus cares. We've seen his compassion over and over and over and over and over again. It's who Jesus is. He sees us when we weep, he sees us when we suffer, he sees us when we grieve. But what can he possibly do in a situation like this? One in which death has already claimed its victim. Offer his condolences? Ask where to send the flowers? No, we're told, verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now, if Luke didn't tell us that Jesus had compassion on, on this woman, we might be inclined to think otherwise. Don't weep, Jesus says. That's an incredibly heartless and insensitive thing for anyone to say to someone burying a loved one. Dry up your tears. Except that this is Jesus, who doesn't just have the power to raise dying men, but dead ones too. So that here you see a full-on collision between the, the seeming finality of death and the resurrection and the life. 
In the words of one commentator, an unstoppable force was meeting a seemingly immovable object. And the unstoppable force in this case is not death, it's Jesus. This is the first time Luke himself declares Jesus to be the Lord. And it's perfectly timed in the sharing of this story in which Jesus reveals himself to be master over death itself. Verse 14 tells us, and he, Jesus, came up, touched the bier, the open coffin, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. In this case, no one asked Jesus to do anything. In fact, Jesus is the only one in this story who expresses faith that the dead man can be raised to life. I don't know if you're like me, where you oftentimes say to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If you bring a shaky faith to the table, you'll appreciate this. In the words of Martin Luther, he says, you here have an example, not of faith, but of the pure grace and loving kindness of God. Here Jesus acts of his own initiative as he's moved with pity, pity and compassion. And he touches the open coffin, bringing the procession to a screeching halt, that immovable object meeting a seemingly immovable one and saying, death, you shall stop in your tracks right now. It's an act, Jesus touching that coffin that would have made anyone who did so ceremonially unclean, like the touching of a leper, except with Jesus, that whole thing works the other way around, doesn't it? And he speaks to the lifeless widow's son. Young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. All right, to, to say that this is an earth-shattering moment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that would be an understatement. I think it's safe to say that. A dead man sits up, shakes off his burial linens, and speaks. If you've seen that at a funeral, please come up after the service and tell me that story. I've yet to see it. And notice that Luke relays it to us in the most anticlimactic fashion. It doesn't even get two sentences in the English. As if to say, what would you expect? I've given you six chapters of this stuff thus far. And Jesus gives the man to his mother bringing them into each other's arms so that where there was once grief and despair, just a moment prior, there's now peace and joy. A dead man restored to his widowed mother, echoing back to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. It's this booming declaration in the words of one commentator that Jesus is not merely Lord of the living, he is also Lord over the dead. He's Lord over everything. As you would imagine, verse 16 Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The people are overcome with fear, as would any of us be if we saw a dead man raised to life with our very own eyes. And they declare, a prophet has risen among us. God, he's visited his people. Their words filled with so much more truth than they even realize. In lyrical agreement, going back to chapter one with Zechariah's song of blessing, 
That yes, God has visited his people in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the promised sunrise from on high, a prophet indeed in the honorable company of Elijah and Elisha. But he's so much more than that. If we could go back on that redemptive historical tour of scripture, picking up where we left off with creation, there is no such thing as resurrection in a world without death. These stories, they remind us that that sickness and death are a part of the fabric of the world in which we live. Sin's curse. It's not just Adam's story. It's your story. It's my story. And sin entered the picture. Suffering and death followed suit. Physical death, surely, but also spiritual death. The, The umbilical cord between us and God, relationally speaking, was severed. Genesis 3, most of you know this. It's a devastating chapter of the Bible. But it's also the chapter in which God makes a promise. What theologians refer to as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel proclamation. A promise to reverse the mess that we've gotten ourselves into as sinners. A promise to send a hero who would someday slay, as I say all the time, the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. That when we read our Old Testament, we're meant to ask with great anticipation over and over and over again, is that him? Is that the hero? Is he finally here? And all of a sudden, a man shows up on the scene with the power to heal a dying man from a distance, with the power to raise a man from the dead with an authoritative word. Could it be? The hero that God promised in a garden so very long ago, having come to reverse the curse? And the answer is an affirmative, authoritative yes and amen, that Jesus had a plan to destroy death before death ever even entered the picture. He's the one bringing that redemptive plan to fulfillment. He's the resurrection and the life. We don't have to wait till next Sunday to celebrate it and say it. We should say it every week. He's the one who himself would someday be raised from the dead and would walk away from his own burial linens for our justification. We who, like the centurion, are doubly unworthy. But for the grace of God, amen, the power of his authoritative word, We can never claw ourselves out of the tomb of spiritual death. That's the bad news. The good news is, using the language of this morning's passage, this is a God who says, arise. And when he speaks, things come to pass, including sinners dead in their trespasses, rising up by his sovereign command from the ashes of spiritual death to the newness of life in him. That's why the apostle Paul could say, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let there be light. Lazarus, come forth. Young man, I say to you, arise. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is simple. It's that Jesus would perform that great miracle in your life. I mentioned that these two stories point both backwards and forwards in time, all the way back to the story of creation, all the way forward to the story of consummation, the end of everything awful and horrific 
about this world as we know it, as Jesus comes to set all things right, looking to the future. Scripture tells us that Jesus will someday return to bring about the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as Jesus himself teaches in those very same gospel accounts and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and to the lamb in the new heaven and earth, the home of righteousness. And think about this, coming back to the imagery of this morning's passage. On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Jesus, just as the widow's son was presented to her by Jesus. As we who are in Christ longingly wait for that day, my prayer for us is simple. It's that we would believe more deeply and experience more fully the compassion and power of Jesus in our lives. That on the one hand, he's the man of sorrows. He knows pain and the grief of loss from the inside. He offers comfort, the comfort of his presence to those who mourn. If you bring sorrow and grief into this place this morning, he, he can meet you there. He wants to meet you there. He's sufficient to meet you there. On the other hand, he's the death-conquering resurrection in the life who continues to move in power as he rolls away the stone from human hearts. I'll leave you with a quote this morning. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, the prince of peace is stronger than that king of terrors. And though death, the last enemy, is mighty, he is not so mighty as the sinner's friend. I hope you're encouraged this morning. I hope you're comforted. I hope you're overwhelmed by the power and authority of Jesus Christ. I hope you're excited to sing as the collective expression of his bride in these moments to come, as we sing of his compassion, as we sing of his authority and power, as, as we sing of, of his power to raise the dead as we celebrate his raising us from the dead, shining light into our darkness, calling us out of the tomb like Lazarus. If you're a Christian, oh my goodness, communion should taste sweet this morning. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table there. You're welcome to grab one and partake of the Lord's Supper at any point over the course of these last two songs. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Without the cross and empty tomb, there is, no, there is no hope of us coming from death to life. There is nothing to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. It's not a means of grace. But because of Jesus, we can receive those elements gladly and joyfully and gratefully this morning.